Christmas as we consider uh, Mary's song, also called the Magnificat. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us understand it, and then we'll look at it together. Father, thank you so much for preserving this part of your word for us, and thank you for Christmas time, which gives us an opportunity to revisit these parts of the Bible that talk about the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he will be glorified this morning and that he will be magnified this morning and that as that happens, we will find him irresistible again, that our hearts will be warm to him and that we will be drawn to him in the way that we live our lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it seems like an obvious thing to say but it is true that Christmas is big around the world. Um, more than two billion people in more than 160 countries consider Christmas to be the most important holiday of the year. I'm told that nine out of 10 Americans celebrate the holiday even if they're not Christians. They'll take the holiday. Research conducted by Wonga SA revealed that last Christmas, um, South Africans between the ages of 18 and 65 spent an average of 6,326 rand over the Christmas season. That is, they injected, they pumped 252 billion rand into the economy for no other reason than that it was just Christmas. Christmas is big economically, financially. Christmas is big from a family point of view. And I want to show you this song, Mary's song, which reveals a big God with a big plan. If you were here last week, you'll know that we started to look at Mary and the virgin birth and the significance of the virgin birth last week in the first part of Luke chapter 1. And today we're going to continue now to look at Mary's song called the Magnificat. The journey to her cousin Elizabeth was 80 to 100 uh, miles away. That would have been a three to four, maybe a five day journey. The unborn presence of the Messiah causes John the Baptist to leap in Elizabeth's womb. And she cries out, did you notice, with, with blessings. Um, look at verse uh, 42. In a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child that you will bear. That you will bear. But why am I so favored? That is, why am I so blessed that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How kind of God, don't you think, to have given Mary, Elizabeth, an older woman, a family member, a cousin. In a, you know, it, it was likely that nobody else understood Mary's situation in the town from which she came. And so God brings her to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth meets her with just warmth and real understanding. No judgment, no question marks about this pregnancy. And welcomes her with open arms and her unborn child. And she demonstrates really an extraordinary understanding of the situation as the Lord gives Mary this older woman to help her through a difficult time. And the result is a song from Mary um, who must have been so grateful to find one other person who could enter in to the joy with her of this pregnancy. And her song is a brilliantly woven tapestry of the Old Testament. Uh, it has lying in the background 1 Samuel chapter 2, which you might remember is Hannah's song. Do you remember who Hannah was? Hannah was Samuel's mother 
She was a woman who grieved because she was barren and couldn't have um, children. And the Lord, she begged God for a child. The Lord gave her a child. And she also writes a song in gratitude for this child. And that song is playing on Mary's mind as she travels. She's got 80 to 100 kilometers, miles to go. And as she's traveling, she's thinking about Hannah because she finds herself in a very similar situation. And so 1 Samuel chapter 2 is in her mind. But also Psalm 113, she draws on that, which is a beautiful hymn of praise. And uh, we'll see that in a moment. So I want to show you three things that the song points to. This morning, Christmas reveals a big God. Christmas reveals a big reversal. And Christmas reveals a big plan. So first of all, Christmas reveals a big God. She begins by saying, literally, in our NIVs it says, my soul glorifies the Lord, but the word is actually magnifies the Lord. And that's, by the way, where we get the word where we get the, the word magnificat from. Magnificat is Latin for the word magnify. She's saying, my soul makes the Lord bigger, for that is what magnify means, to make something bigger. But what can that mean when it comes to God? How can you make God bigger than what he is? He's already big. He holds the world in his hands. Look at this verse from Psalm 113 which Mary is thinking about. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He's enormous. The heavens can't contain him. How can you make him bigger? How can you magnify the Lord? You can't make him bigger. He holds everything in his hands. He is above, before, and beyond anything and everything. So what does she mean? My soul magnifies the Lord. What she means is, is that God has been magnified in her own heart and mind. That's what she's saying. She verbally enlarges the Lord. It's a sign that he has become her everything. She exalts him. You know, this is what happens when Christ becomes real to us. Many have experienced this. Many in this room, you know exactly what it's like. Christ has become large in your life. He's been magnified in your heart. As we journey together with the Lord, isn't it true when you look back that he becomes more and more important? He takes over more and more of our heart and of our mind. We begin to enlarge him in our hearts and in our lives. And it spills out onto her lips. And so twice she says in parallel, with everything that is in me, verse 46 and 47, with my whole soul and spirit, I am magnifying the Lord. I am magnifying the Lord. As we approach Christmas week, isn't this an important reminder for what should occupy our hearts and minds? There are going to be lots of things occupying our hearts and minds from tomorrow morning, aren't there? Last-minute shopping, uh, cooking, thoughts of holidays, perhaps you haven't booked yet. Um, but I want to suggest to you that this Magnificat, this song of Mary's, really is the right response at Christmas time. It's the right response for the Lord to be enlarged in our hearts. It's worth pausing for a moment and asking, what is occupying my heart at the moment? What 
Or perhaps who am I magnifying in my heart? Can I suggest that, that Christmas time is really a good opportunity for us to reflect on that question and to maybe recalibrate as we look back on the year, perhaps to recognize that our lives really have not actually reflected a magnified God. If you were to take an audit of my life over this, this last year, would you say that God has been magnified, that he has been central, that he has been big in my life? Today is a good day for us to reflect on that and perhaps to put that right as we approach Christmas. She magnifies God for what he has done for her, verse 48. He has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant, she says. She bases her song here on 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, the time of Samuel was very similar to the time of Jesus' birth because Israel needed God's intervention in the days of Samuel, a couple of thousand years before Mary, and in the days of Mary, Israel needed God's help and God's intervention. God had promised it. And as Mary journeys to Elizabeth, she, she's turning over the story of Samuel and his mother Hannah and what happened in Israel at that time. And so she quotes almost word for word from the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She's been reflecting on God's plan of rescue for his people. For that is what Hannah's song is all about. And she recognizes her own spiritual poverty. She realizes that she can't do it herself, that she needs somebody from outside of herself to break into her life and to make things right. See, God comes to those who realize that they can't help themselves. It's the very, a very important starting point in our relationship with God is to recognize that we can't help ourselves spiritually. We need God to reach in and to do the change and to help us. And so God comes to those, and Mary recognizes this, of low estate, those of humble state, as she puts it in verse 48. You know, she has understood the natural state spiritually of every human being who has ever lived. We are all spiritually of humble estate. We've got nothing that God wants. We've got nothing to offer. We've got nothing to bargain with. We've got nothing to put on the table with God. We are of low estate. That's the starting point for any relationship with God. We are not God's equal. We are lowly. We are needy and we are of humble estate. She magnifies God for who he is to her as well. Look at verse 49. She mentions three of the Lord's excellencies in verse, 40, in verse 49 and 50. She says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. Did you see it? He's mighty, he's holy, He's merciful. Mighty. God's power to save the world is what is in view for Mary as she says that. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. That is what verse 37 says, reading back into last week's passage. For nothing is impossible with God. He is mighty. He can do anything. But he is also holy. Holiness is his name, she says in verse 49. Holiness 
really is a quality of God, an attribute of God that approaches the essence of God maybe more than any other word. It has to do with the fact that God is entirely other to anything that he has made. He exists in unapproachable light. God exists in blinding holiness, terrifying holiness. So it's so wonderful in verse 50 that she also remembers mercy. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. That's the quality you need after you've heard that he's mighty and holy. How will I survive being friends with somebody who can do anything and who is blindingly holy? Well, I can only survive if he's also merciful. And so she reminds us of God's mercy. Mercy is God's undeserved favor and it extends to all who fear him. Imagine if God was only mighty and holy and not merciful. We would never be able to go near him We wouldn't be able to approach him. But he is also a God of mercy. God is mighty. God is holy. God is merciful. You know, as I read this this week, it struck me that actually she talks like somebody who really knows God. This is more than just an academic kind of textbook knowledge of God. This is somebody who knows God personally, who has a personal relationship. She is seeped, isn't she, in personal knowledge of the true and living God. And so her godly gratitude and humility is a very striking thing. There's no personal aggrandizement. She's self-deprecating and she's God-glorifying in her song. She knows God, but she also knows herself. Verse 47 She says, my saviour, I need saving. That's what she's acknowledging. Now, on one level, let's remember that Mary is speaking as a Jew under the uh, occupation of the Roman Empire. So on one level, she's speaking nationally. We need God, just like in the days of Samuel, to rescue the nation uh, and to, to restore to us our freedom. But... In a a sense, she mirrors that need personally and individually and spiritually on another level. She is sinful. She has failed in her responsibility towards God. She also needs a savior, just like you and I do. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, she says in verse 47. I wonder, do you know God like that? Do you know him personally? Do you know him as a savior? I'm not asking if you know about him. I'm not asking if you know the Christmas story. I'm not asking if you know about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm asking, do you know Jesus as a savior in your own life? Have you recognized your need to be saved? Have you recognized your personal spiritual bankruptcy? and that we need God to intervene in our lives. This Christmas, will we respond like Mary does? She makes God bigger in her heart and in her mind and in her life? Or is there something else that occupies your heart, that demands your attention, that has your priorities and your loyalty? So after worshiping, magnifying God's 
person, she now turns to the plans of God. And so secondly, Christmas reveals not only a big God, but a big reversal. Verse 51 to 53, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. She sings about the plans of God here in these verses. And will you notice that it's in the past tense? All the verbs are in the past tense in those verses. She's singing about things that haven't yet taken place, but are so certain to take place that she can sing about them as though they already have. It's quite a common thing in the Bible to come across that kind of language. It's called the prophetic past tense, where she speaks in the past tense about things that will happen in the future but are so certain that it's almost it's a done deal. It's not an uncommon way that the Bible speaks. And what she sings about is a series of reversals. God can reverse every human circumstance and situation completely. The kingdom of God is unlike any human kingdom. The gospel of Jesus brings some down, the mighty, the powerful, the rich, and it lifts others up, the humble and the poor and the lowly. It's another way of saying God saves the unexpected. It's an interesting theme in the Bible that if you think that you do not need saving, then your attitude will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You won't be saved because you won't have any need for Jesus. He's got nothing for you and he will pass you by. But if you know the state of your own heart, like Mary does, if you know that you need saving, he's interested in you, he's got something to offer you because he came for the sinners, not for the righteous. Luke is very interested in his gospel, in the unexpected people that God saves. And so those you would expect to be first, the religious people, for example, the moral people, the wealthy people, the good people, in Luke's gospel they are last. And those who in that society were last, beggars and sinners and prostitutes and children, they are first. It's very surprising how God orders his kingdom. It's not how we order our kingdoms or our society at all. But the God who is able to do the impossible has a way of reversing fortunes. No doubt in Mary's mind, she's remembering the history of Israel. God can take slaves, remember, in Egypt, and make them the superpower of the day when Israel ruled the world. And he can take superpowers like Egypt and remove them completely from their position. God humbles the powerful and the proud and he lifts up the humble. That is God's way. To be proud in the thoughts of your heart, look at verse 51, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, is to be self-sufficient spiritually is to think that you're okay because you come to church because you celebrate Christmas because you are a decent middle-class educated person I'm okay that's what it means to be proud in the inner thoughts of your heart but God opposes the proud 
He deposes the proud and he lifts up the humble. You don't have to be the richest or the most powerful person alive to be proud in the inmost thoughts of your heart. You can think you're okay. I'm not so bad. You should see that person that I know in my life. If you compared me to them, then you'd see what a good person I am. We all are prone to those sorts of thoughts, aren't we? The spiritually proud need to take heed, for God will depose you if you think you have no need of salvation or of rescue. Those who go up will come down, and those who are down will go up. If you are a religious person, if you are a churchgoer, if you are a moral person, it's just worth examining your heart this morning and saying, do I recognize that in spite of my lifestyle, I need Jesus to save me? I can't save myself. In verse 53, there's an an economic reversal that she talks about. He has filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. You know, in Luke's gospel, he uses the language of hungry and full or poor and rich to talk about our spiritual state. This is the one whom the Lord blesses. Blessed are the poor. Do you remember that from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? That's Luke chapter 6 and verse 20. He's talking about those who recognize their spiritual poverty before the Lord. And so again, let's examine our hearts this morning. What is the state of your heart this morning? Are you quite pleased with yourself that you're in church? That you're you're a relatively good person? You're one of those two billion celebrating Christmas this year. Not like the pagans who don't, don't do anything. But can I ask, are you hungry for God? Do you recognize your need for him? For Jesus has nothing to offer us this Christmas if we are rich, full, and self-sufficient. Well, Christmas lastly reveals a big plan. Verse 54 and 55, look at it with me. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our forefathers. You know, it's an amazing thing. Remember that Mary is probably a 15 or 16-year-old as she writes this song. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I reckon she, she should have gone on, you know, Israel's Got Talent or something like that for songwriting of this quality. As Mary looks at the world, she understands Christmas. She understands the birth of her unborn child in terms of a promise made to Abraham thousands of years before. The promise of God to Abraham contained a promise that was so big that it would span all of time and transcend all of humanity, and she recognizes that. It was a promise that the whole world, every person who ever lived, would be blessed as a result of somebody that would come in the line of Abraham. And she realizes that it is her unborn child. You know these verses well, but let's look at them again. Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, where God makes a promise to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, 
so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. See, God enters into an arrangement with Abraham which has an impact on the whole world. Mary recognizes that, but do you know that it is still having an impact on the world today? That's why we are here. That's why we are gathered. That's why many in this room this morning are children of Abraham, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, because you are putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas is not just about the 25th of December, which is it's doubtful anyway that that was the day that Jesus was born on, as we all know. But Christmas is actually patching in to a plan that transcends time and humanity and geography. It's one aspect of a huge plan that God is still busy with. Mary recognizes thousands of years after the life of Abraham that, it, that this is what this is all about. She claims that what will happen to her is because of what God said to Abraham. But it's also going to have an impact on all generations, verse 48. From now on, all generations, she says, will call me blessed. She picks up the Abrahamic promise from God and carries it on so that it impacts us. Because in verse 50, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has, uh, ex his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. The mercy that God extended to the world through Abraham through Samuel, through Mary, is still on offer to us today because it's the Abrahamic promise is still operational today in our generation. We're not left out. And so God works through an individual to bless the world. That is always God's way. He did that with Abraham. He does, he does that with Mary. And ultimately, he does that through the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know that Christmas is big. But did you realize it was that big? From where we are sitting, Abraham was four and a half thousand years ago. And what God said to Abraham then is still operational this Christmas time. A blessing to the world, to your family, to you, because the Lord Jesus Christ has come. Little did Abraham know what shape it would take. As she writes the song, little does Mary know what shape it'll take and how big this plan actually is and that it would culminate in the death of Jesus. Little did she know that the way that this mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation is through the death of her dear son and how that death brings the mercy of God to us. Christmas is big. It's bigger than you thought. It's about a history-spanning, world-reversing, universe-affecting plan. Have you thought about the fact that at the beginning of Jesus' life, there was a cosmic sign? Do you remember the star that is followed by the wise men? And at the end of Jesus' life, there is a cosmic sign on the cross. There's darkness for three hours. It's a reminder to us that Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection is cosmic in its scope and in its scale. It's a big plan. Don't you want to be part of it? It's the only thing that's going to last. Your business is not going to last. 
your degrees aren't going to last. But here is a plan that has already lasted four and a half thousand years and is continuing to have effect on the world. That's something I want to be part of, something that's going to last. And so let's, this Christmas week, let's magnify the one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that transcends all other kingdoms, and let's rejoice that his mercy is still available to our generation. It might be that there is somebody here today who wants to ask God for the first time to be part of that kingdom. There's no better way for you to start the Christmas week than doing that. And so let's bow for a moment of quiet reflection in the privacy of our own heart. And it might be that you want to say something to God that is appropriate.